0: I don't know if you've ever thought about what you would do if you could just for a moment get a glimpse of the full glory of Jesus Christ. When, when I was in high school, one of my favorite Christian music groups was a band called Third Day. Actually, I don't even know if they're still touring anymore. Uh, they probably are. They, they've been around for a long time. They still are. Okay, I guess see some nods. Yep, they're still a thing. Well, they had a song called Show Me Your Glory. It was based on Moses' experience on the mountain with God as Moses was up on that mountain. He asked to see the glory of the Lord, and in many ways, you think about that. What, a, what an audacious request of an individual. Show me your glory, and that's what uh, the text says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. He's up there on the mountain, and he wants to, he wants to behold the glory of the Lord, so that third day song played off this request, put into a song about longing to see the Lord and I'm just going to read some of the lyrics. The song begins with this meditation, I caught a glimpse of your splendor in the corner of my eye. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It was like a flash of lightning that reflected off the sky and I know I'll never be the same. And the second verse of that song reflects upon the response to, to seeing the glory when I climb down the mountain and get back to my life, I won't settle for ordinary things. I'm going to follow you forever. For all my days, I won't rest until I see you again. In many ways, the lyrics of that song are not necessarily particularly profound. It's a pretty simple song reflecting upon Moses seeing the glory of the Lord and, and, and Not directly though, right? Because remember he says he caught a glimpse of your glory in the corner of my eye. Well, that was if you're familiar with that text from Exodus, God placed Moses into the crevice of the rock and, and covered him with his hand and only allowed him to see the backside of him because no man can see the face of God, can can gaze into the full radiance of the glory of God and live. It is too much. For mortal, sinful eyes to behold. So we just got a glimpse of the glory of God. And yet, having seen that glory of the Lord, that, that song intends to capture the idea of the, the, the transformational effect that it ought to have upon a person's life, that, that just beholding the glory of God it, it's not just something that we say, oh, wow, isn't that nice, and then we go about our day like we've just looked at a nice piece of art or something. No, it has a transformational effect in our lives, and when we behold the full glory of the Lord, that it changes us. Very few people in the Bible had the privilege of beholding the glory of God. Of course, there was Moses. And when he beheld the glory, of course, it had a physical effect upon him as well, right? His face literally glowed, radiating, reflecting the glory of God. And so he wore a veil so that people wouldn't see the fading glory as it began to fade out. I think of Isaiah. He saw that vision of the throne room of God in Isaiah 6, and and his response to that, it it brought him to his knees in despair of his life, and he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. He says, I'm an unclean man, and, and I've seen the glory of God. Cases of Moses and Isaiah, that was the glory of God, the Father being revealed. To these individuals as they were gazing upon uh, his splendor and his majesty. And in our text today, we're going to see the glory of God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed by the Father, and the implications of that. Mentioned as at the MCE meetings. Uh, this weekend, and I was having a conversation with one of the other church planters there, and he said he had a very interesting guest one Sunday as uh, this this woman came, and and she was more of a charismatic persuasion in her theology, and uh, she pulled the pastor aside afterwards and said, Pastor, I saw Jesus sitting up on your communion table today, and and he told me that this is a dead church, which is a pretty pretty audacious thing to say, our first Sunday there. And and that, that pastor was explaining to me how he responded to that woman in that moment. He said, you know, first of all, you don't know us. You don't know these people. You don't know what God is doing within their lives. And I happen to know very well that this is a very alive church. Uh, secondly, I know that you did not see Jesus, because every time we see individuals seeing the Lord in Scripture, it has a profound effect. You would not be sitting there in your pew, sitting nicely. You would be on your face before the Lord. Beholding the glory of God has an effect upon us and it has an effect upon the disciples even in our text today that we're gonna see. And and the question becomes, okay, how how do we respond? What is the appropriate response? Well let's read our text together today as we consider we are in Mark chapter nine today. And we're going to begin with verse 2, we're going to see the glory of Christ is going to be revealed by the Father. The glory of Christ revealed by the Father, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, and He led them up a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as, as no one on earth could bleach them. does it does come first to restore all things how then is it written that the son of man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt but i tell you that elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him we just like to remind us for a moment the context in which we find ourselves with this text jesus has been teaching his followers about concepts of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? He has now revealed it to them that the Messiah must suffer. He, Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Okay, yes, you have rightly said that I am the Christ. That is a correct confession, and here is what that means. It's that a man must suffer, Furthermore, if anyone wants to follow Me in discipleship, they must be prepared to suffer as well. But then He encourages them by assuring them that it is worth the cost. And then He gives them a promise that we briefly looked at last week, the promise that, that there would be some that would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We saw that chapter 9, verse 1. The promise that, that the disciples would eventually see clearly, like there, there would come that point when they would see clearly. Again, I, I did briefly touch on this last week, but I believe that our text today is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1, "...truly I say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power." And that, that verse has been a stumbling block to many individuals in, in the sense of just struggling with how to understand and interpret that verse and what Jesus could possibly be referring to. I do not think it has to be as complicated as it is often made it to be, but the question often is asked and really must be answered is this, what does it mean to see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? What is the kingdom of God? When has it come with power? A variety of things that different commentators and students of the Word have tried to tried to understand this, but here is what I am convinced of as I stand before you today. Seeing the kingdom of God after it has come with power refers to catching that glimpse of the glory of the kingdom that comes with Christ, even though we recognize that the fullness of that glory is yet to be revealed. Seeing the kingdom of God after it has come with power, it refers to catching that glimpse of the glory of the kingdom that comes with Christ. We're talking about the transfiguration itself that is about to flow out of these verses. And I believe that for several reasons. First, there is the immediate context. Of course, Jesus makes the promise. Six days later, there they are up on the mountain and God reveals the glory of God to the disciples. They are seeing the power and the glory of God right there in that moment. So the immediate context leads us to that conclusion that that's what Jesus was referring to. Secondly, we happen to have Peter's own testimony about this event and what occurred there. So flip over with a moment. Actually, the verses are going to be up on the screen, so you don't necessarily have to flip over there. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18 says this, Peter writes, "'For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, "'This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased.'" We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter makes note of several things that are important for us. First, he notes that, that they saw the power in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we were eyewitnesses to that. We, we saw that ourselves. We were eyewitnesses of this majesty with our own two eyeballs. Right? We saw it. We were there. But then verse 17 begins with that word, for, and that provides additional grounding for this previous statement. He says, yes, yes, we saw it, and, and we know that we saw it. We, we had this experience. How do we know that, that we saw the majesty of Christ? How do we know that Jesus came with power and with glory? This is what we saw. He received that honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born there. This is my Son. They heard the voice. They heard what was said as they were with Him on that holy mountain. Peter describes what, he, what we see in our text, in, our, in, in this Mark chapter 9 text. Peter describes what we see there as seeing the power and the glory of Christ. Thus, it, it just makes the most sense logically, contextually, and from Peter's own testimony that this is what Jesus was referring to when He said that there would be some of you we get to see some of the glory of the kingdom. the glory of Christ revealed by the Father. Well, let's take note of several things with this reveal. What happens here? okay the, the transfiguration what's going on here let's Let's take a look at a few things. Uh, Jesus takes Peter, James and John, he takes them up on the mountain. We see that in verse two. These three disciples. It, These are almost sort of like the inner circle. You've got the twelve, and you've got the three. And these individuals, they're with Jesus in several particular places. We see them. these are the individuals that Jesus took to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They are with Him here on the Mount of Transfiguration. And these are the disciples that will be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, Jesus leads them up on the high mountain. We don't know which mountain it was exactly, but it was a high mountain. And there Jesus is transfigured before them. And that word for transfigured speaks of a transformation. There's a change that that happens there. That, That word is only used four times in the entire New Testament. Two times it's in relation to this event here in Mark and then once over in Matthew. The other two times it's used, Paul uses it to speak of a spiritual transformation. This is the word that we find in Romans chapter 12, to be transformed in the renewal of your mind. There's a transformation that is to occur there. The idea that there's a change. Well, in those contexts with Paul, there's a spiritual transformation. Well, here there's a physical transformation, a physical appearance change. Matthew and Luke both note that Jesus' face shone, it, it glowed, and Mark takes note of the radiance of His clothes. And I love Mark's such vivid a description. He was whiter than, than any person on earth could bleach the clothes. Like, nobody could get it whiter than what it was there in that moment. Intensely white. It's interesting that that word, that He was transfigured, it's in the passive voice. This wasn't something that Jesus did to himself. Jesus didn't transfigure himself, but, but this was the work of God the Father transfiguring him. He was transfigured by the Father as the Father was revealing the glory of Christ to his disciples. So there's a transfiguration itself, and then we have Moses and Elijah show up, and they start talking with Jesus. Now, I'm just trying to picture that scene in my mind's eye and just what that, that could have been like for the disciples to stand there. They're, they're seeing Jesus and He, he begins to, to shine radiant like the sun and just, just brightly there in front of them. And then there's two other individuals and there's Moses and there's Elijah and they're standing there and they're talking with Jesus. What an incredible picture in sight that must have been. And I'm sure they were probably doing this whole like, okay, in my eyes like, am I really seeing this kind of thing? Because it's just really an incredible incredible moment. As we try to understand what's going on with this text, there's, there's going to be several natural questions that really should arise as we consider this. Okay, what, what's, what's going on with this scene? What's going on with Moses and Elijah? And I just want to press in on what I believe are some of the most significant details. There's probably more questions to be asked of this text that the text has answers for, for us, quite honestly. But I think there are some things that we can grasp. And so we want to press into those things. First, what is going on with this scene? What's the point here? What's, why is this happening? Well, I believe Jesus is being presented here as a, as a new Moses of sorts. If, if we compare the details of what Jesus is, is experiencing here with the transfiguration, and we compare that with what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai. The, the parallels are really quite striking. And so if you want to jot down this couple of Scripture references, we don't have time to, to turn there, but you can jot these down and read the description there uh, some other time. But jot down Exodus chapter 24 and, and Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Jot those down, but if we were to compare those passages together, we would see that there is a, there's a six-day wait for revelation. Moses, he's up on the mountain. He's up there for six days before we hear of of the giving of the commandments and things. And here, Jesus, after six days of this promise, they're up on the mountain. In both cases, there is an ascent up onto a mountain. In both cases, there is a, a form of transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, and Moses, he begins to radiate with the glory of the Lord himself. In both cases, God the Father appears, though veiled in a cloud. Verse 7 in our text, we say, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. God God speaks from the cloud in both Mount Sinai and here with Jesus. And then at the conclusion of each, there are faithless followers waiting for both Moses and Jesus as they come down the mountain. So many similarities, so many comparisons that it's really too much to overlook and ignore, that there is... Some significance here. Moses spoke of a day when a prophet would arise like him. This is at the end of, towards the end of Moses' life as the people are about to go into the promised land. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses foretells of a day when there would be a prophet who would come, and he would be like Moses. He would speak the words of God. He would would have authority from the Lord. And in our text, we find God telling the disciples to listen to Jesus. Jesus. All those parallels would would make the reader to to make these connections, oh, a prophet like Moses has arrived, he's here, this is it, this is the one. So broadly speaking, what's going on with the presentation of Jesus in this moment, with this transfiguration is, yes, we have the new and and, and better Moses before you, This, this individual, the Messiah, the one who was to come. Uh, Peter has already confessed Him to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. Well, this is divine confirmation of that truth, that that confession is accurate, as well as confirmation of who Jesus is in relation to Old Testament prophecy, including the one from Moses himself. Jesus is that prophet who was to come. Second question that we might ask is, okay, so that's, that's what's going on here. What about these appearances of Moses and Elijah? Why are these guys showing up? What's, what's going on there? Again, there's different ideas that people have regarding this. You know, some have made the suggestion that, okay, these represent the law and the prophets, you know. Uh, Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and so kind of have like a, a, a confirmation or testimony from all of Old Testament, representative of all the Old Testament characters that yes, this is, this is the one. That's possible. I think that, that's a possible understanding. I, I, I do think there's uh, maybe a little bit more going on than just that. First, these two individuals, they are, they're both great leaders of the people from the Old Testament, and they play significant preparatory roles for the Messiah. Significant preparatory roles for the Messiah. I like how one commentator, he put it this way, Moses was the precursor, and Elijah was the preparer. Moses the precursor, Elijah the preparer. Moses, again, he predicted that there would be a prophet who would come, and he would be like him, he'd be like Moses. And we saw those parallels already, and there's there's even more parallels and we uh, don't have time to get into fully today. So Moses was the precursor, well... Elijah is the preparer. Elijah was prophesied to come and to prepare the way for the Messiah. So, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we find this text. This, of course, is at the very end of the Old Testament. This is the last of the Old Testament prophets, the the last mouthpiece from God for 400 years until John the Baptist gets on the scene. And then you have these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this text tells of the coming of Elijah, who was to prepare the way for the Messiah, to... To, to be there before the day of the Lord comes. And so the people of God, the Israelites, they were looking for this Elijah figure who would, who would step onto the scene in advance of the coming of the Messiah. And so we have Moses, the precursor, and Elijah, the preparer, coming and meeting with Jesus there at His transfiguration, at His revelation to the disciples Beholding his glory, confirming that this is the one. This is the guy. This is the one you've been looking for. I do intend to talk about the concept of Elijah in a few minutes. So there are more questions that can be brought up about the role of Elijah in relation to the Messiah. We'll get into those in a few minutes. But for now, suffice it to say, these men prepared the way for Jesus, but Jesus is the fulfillment of their preparatory work. The glory of Christ is thus revealed by the Father. This is an incredible scene. Of course, the disciples, they are clearly amazed as well, as their response shows. I made that reference to that song from Third Day, and that second verse is about the response to the glory of the Lord. Okay, yeah, that, that should have an impact upon someone's life, that, that should change something about them. Wow, okay, I'm seeing this, that, that should have a, have a response, but there are right ways to respond and there are wrong ways to respond. So, how will we respond to seeing the glory of Christ? The glo- seeing the glory of Christ should challenge our response Look at what Peter does. He's the ever eager one. He pipes up and look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. First, the text there says that Peter said to Jesus, and there's something I need to to point out for you that is just an interesting translation choice by many of our modern translations. I'm going to show you the the New King James translation up on the screen there where it says, then Peter answered and said to Jesus. He answered and said to Jesus. Now, sometimes we have differences in translation between different Bible translations because there's a textual difference, an underlying textual difference where some... uh, Uh, Bible translations are relying upon one set of… or a family of manuscripts. Another Bible translation might be relying more upon another family of manuscripts. And so, sometimes that accounts for the difference between translation. That is not the case here. There is not a textual difficulty here. The, the, The Greek phrasing is literally, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, or really, answering Peter said to Jesus. There's a translation philosophy question here where uh, is is this redundancy, or is there something being communicated uh, with this concept? And I, I, I actually think there is something to be said for this redundancy here. I don't think it's an accident that that Mark is just like, well, it's just you know just the way I'm writing. No, I think there's something here. When we consider Peter's response, where it says Peter answered them, well, did anybody ask Peter a question? Nope, <laughs> he's answering when he's not been asked a question. He's just piping up. It's it's, it's communicating that, that Peter is just jumping into something here, when perhaps it may not have been his place to do so. But he's answering, even though no one has asked him any questions. Second, notice that he calls him rabbi or teacher, rabbi. He calls Him teacher. He calls Him rabbi. He doesn't call Him Christ or Messiah or Lord or, or anything like that or any other titles that would be more befitting to Christ, particularly in that moment. And I don't know if, if, if Peter is necessarily intentionally belittling Christ as if to say, okay, I just saw your glory, but I don't believe that. I'm just going to call you a rabbi. That's probably not necessarily what was in Peter's mind. Of course, Jesus was considered a rabbi and and a teacher, and so they often probably would have addressed Him in that way. But it's just in this particular moment, Peter seems to be failing to grasp the significance of who Jesus is. Third, notice he says, oh, it's good that we are here. Well, why? Why is it good that we're here? Oh, because we want to build some tents for you, Jesus. It's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <clears throat> now, this is an admittedly strange thing for Peter to say. What's the significance of tents? And Of course, we should not have in our minds, you know, like a, like a pop-up camping tent, you know, we're not... That's not what should be in our minds. The word for tent uh, can mean a a dwelling place or even a tabernacle. In fact, the New American Standard does translate this word as tabernacle. Let us make three tabernacles for you. This is the word that would be used for the tabernacle in the wilderness. So the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this is the word that would be used, The, the tabernacle, the tent's. Also, it communicates the concept of dwelling. So, we see in, in John chapter 1 where it says uh, that we beheld His glory, or Jesus Christ, uh, the, um, the Word made, uh, was made flesh and dwelt among us. The, that word for dwelt is the word here that tabernacled, He tented among us, he, he dwelt among us, He was living here with us. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God with the people, Right? The people would travel around in the wilderness, they would, they would set up the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord in the form of a cloud would descend upon the tabernacle, and that's how the people knew that God was with them, the glory of the Lord, right here in our midst. So, Peter, by suggesting that they were to build three tabernacles or dwelling places, he may have been suggesting, okay, we, we've seen the glory of Christ All right, let's build these tabernacles for you so that that stays here. We want the kingdom here. We want this to be accomplished. Maybe having these kingdom ideas in his mind. It's time. Yes, the kingdom has finally Come. Of course, we know that, that the Jews at that time had this, this political concept of the Messiah, right? That this is who the Messiah would be, that He would come, they would overthrow Rome, overthrow and This is why Jesus is rebuking Jesus. Hey, you're not going to die, right? We need you to stick around. And Jesus rebukes Peter. But now here, as we as behold the glory of the Lord and we see this going on, we have Peter suggesting that they build these tents. That Moses, Elijah, and the glory of Jesus, glowing in the radiance of His beauty, might dwell there. The foolishness of this statement is highlighted again by verse 6. Peter said this. Why? Well, because he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to say. He's just like, I'm, I, I don't know, so I'm just going to say this, Right? I don't know if you've ever heard that saying, you know, it's better to be silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> I, I think Peter's kind of removing all doubt in this moment, you know. He's, he's, he's opening his mouth and he's saying something that that is just not befitting for the moment. And again, he may not have meant it precisely this way, but, but calling Jesus rabbi and then offering to build not just one tent for the, for the glory of Jesus shining there, but three tents, three tabernacles, one for Moses, Jesus, and Elijah, it's that, that, possible he's inadvertently communicating some kind of equality between these figures, as if they're all on the same level, and they are very much not on the same level. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is on an entirely different level than Moses and Elijah, as significant of figures as they was, those were for the Jewish people. So Peter's response, not it, not what we're looking for. And so God speaks. Verse 7. cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And again, that harkens back to that prophecy by Moses. There's going to be a prophet coming, and you need to listen to him, and now God here says, this is my guy, this is the one, this is the Messiah, you listen to him. Peter may have confessed that Jesus was the Christ in chapter 8, but Jesus had to correct his understanding of the implications of that. And here God speaks on Jesus' behalf. Listen to Jesus. Yes, okay, that's great. You've made an accurate confession of who Jesus is. Now you've seen the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. Now listen to Him. Pay attention to the words. I'm sure we've all either... We've had this conversation either with our parents or with our children, maybe even both, that there's a difference between the concepts of hearing and listening. You can hear something. You know, there's, there, there's, there's sound, there's sound waves that are coming and smashing against your eardrum, right? You can hear something, go in one ear, right out the other, but if you listen, if you're listening to something, it, it sinks in, it, it, it sits with you, you're paying attention to it. It, it, it's having an impact upon us. Listening implies more than mere, than mere hearing of the Word, it implies obedience to what has been heard. I like how one theologian put things as I was studying this week, he said, a correct Christology without obedience is of no value. Listen to Him. A correct Christology without obedience is of no value. A disciple unwilling to listen to the Master is not going to make a very good apprentice. I think sometimes we all have to be challenged in our response to the Lord. We may not have the, have the opportunity and, the, and the, um, the privilege of seeing the glory of, of Christ in the flesh in this lifetime, at this time, but, but He has communicated things to His Word. Are you listening? Are you listening to the words of Almighty God? And again, I'm not meaning that in like a mystical Way, as if you can hear the audible Word of God to you, no, the Word of God, the Scriptures, thats there for us. He's communicated. Are we listening to that? Are we open to be challenged in our response to what has been revealed? Peter's response was not what it should have been, and so the Lord comes in and says, this is what your response ought to be. The glory of Christ challenges our response. Third and finally, the glory of Christ challenges our understanding. Last several verses describe the aftermath of this event, okay? They they have this this grand moment up on the mountain. They see, see the glory of Christ and the incredible things there. They hear the voice of God the Father booming down from heaven out of the cloud. and Then suddenly... As quickly as things started, they, they're done. Verse 8 says, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It's done. Everything is finished. And so now they come down the mountain. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, this is in keeping with the theme that we've seen throughout the book of Mark, this messianic secret. Hey, don't tell anyone about this. Although, there's there's a slight difference here. This is the first time Jesus says, when the non-disclosure agreement, when that expires. All right, after the Son of Man has risen from the dead, then you can tell people about this. Again, Jesus is about revealing His identity and establishing His timetable on His own schedule, on His own agenda. He doesn't want people that have misconceptions about who the Messiah is to be to come in and try to force their way to do different things. He's establishing it for Himself, and so this is part of that purpose. But look at chapter… look at verse 10, rather. It says, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And just so you're aware, if you have a different translations, you might see something different with that phrase, they kept the matter to themselves. That the words is, is a concept of seizing something. They seized upon this statement. They, they laid a hold of it. And that could, that could be an idiom to communicate the idea that they were, they were just enraptured by this concept. They seized upon it. They're like, oh, what does he mean? He's rising from the dead. Or it could mean that there's something that they, laid, they grabbed a hold of and just kind of just kept Close to the vest, as it kind of communicates here in the ESV. They kept the matter to themselves. They, they laid hold of it. They, they kept it. But they were asking these questions. What does he mean by this? What does rising from the dead mean? Because again, they're not anticipating a suffering Messiah. This is new. Jesus has only just revealed that to him, to them, even though there are Old Testament prophecies that tell of this. They had not considered things in this way before. And so now as they consider the rising from the dead, and of course, they know, they, they believe in a future resurrection at the end of the age. And so now they're trying to piece things together with, with information that they know about the Word of God, about things that have been prophesied before. They're piecing it together with what some of the things that have been taught from the scribes, the Pharisees, the different leaders. And so now they have a question for Jesus. They're, they're, they're trying to understand this. Okay, you're talking about this resurrection from the dead. And, and we know that there's a resurrection at the end But what about this Elijah guy? You know, we just saw him up on the mountain. How does he fit into this? So he says in verse 11, why do the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? Elijah must come. You're, you're, You're talking about rising from the dead, and in their mind they're probably anticipating the resurrection at the end of the age, and they're piecing that together with this concept of Elijah. No, 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 hold on. For, Elijah's supposed to come first, and here you are saying that you need to rise from the dead. How does this all fit together? They're failing to understand how these, how the, the different things that Scriptures teach, how they, they fit together, and so Jesus is going to instruct them. And the logic of, of Jesus' answer, at, at first read, it, it, it is a strange logic in some ways. It doesn't resonate right away, perhaps. Um, As I was reading, I read, you know, several different scholars that are trying to wrestle through this, and I think sometimes the discussion is, again, more complicated than it needs to be. I think there's a pretty straightforward way to understand what Jesus is explaining here and how He's trying to get the disciples to understand the concepts that He's communicating to them. They, they misunderstand the role of Elijah because they ask the question, they, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And then Jesus replies, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So, He's confirming for them, yes, Elijah was to come, that that is an accurate understanding. And you are correct in your assumption that He is to restore all things. That is the right thing to think. Of course, we saw that passage from Malachi chapter 4 that I will send you Elijah who will prepare the way, right? That, that's, that's a thing. What they fail to grasp is what does restore all things mean? Elijah does come first to restore all things. Then Jesus asks a question, and this is what trips some, some interpreters up because it doesn't seem like it flows, but I believe it, it fits so perfectly. Elijah comes and restores all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So, if if Elijah is to come and he's to restore all things, well, then why does the scripture say the Son of Man must suffer? Because Jesus has been teaching them that this is a necessary reality and he can substantiate that from the Old Testament scriptures. So, why? Why, if there's a restoration promised, why does this say that, we have, that there is a suffering that must come? And then in verse 13 He says, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to Him whatever they pleased, as it is written of Him. So, what Jesus is communicating here, He says, yes, Elijah does come, but the restoration is not what you are thinking of. It's not the political thing that you had in your mind, but rather there's a spiritual restoration that comes through the work of the suffering Messiah. And then he says, I tell you that Elijah has come, and who is that? Of course, we understand that to be John the Baptist. And there are other texts where Jesus is going to very clearly say, if you are willing to receive it, John is Elijah. And in in Luke, Luke one seventeen says that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, thus fulfilling the Elijah role. There's a promise, there's that prophecy from Malachi that there would be this Elijah figure that would come, be a forerunner to the coming of the Messiah, and yes, there's the restoration of all things, but that restoration comes through suffering and not political conquest. Jesus says, if you're expecting a political Messiah, why do the Scriptures speak of the suffering Messiah? Because not only did Elijah come, but Elijah suffered too. They did to him whatever they pleased. Of course, we know that story. We covered that, how John the Baptist had his head cut off because of his commitment to speak truth. So we have here, Jesus is correcting their understanding. He's explaining to them, okay, you're you're, you're not understanding things quite rightly with how how Elijah, how the resurrection and how the suffering of the Messiah, how all those things fit together. And so I'm correcting your understanding in these things. Yes, Elijah comes. That's John the Baptist. He prepares the way for the Messiah, not as a conquering king in the sense of political conquest, but as a suffering servant dying on the cross, that we may have true spirit spiritual restoration and eternal life that comes through faith in the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, Elijah suffered, John the Baptist suffered just as Elijah did under the wicked kings of, that he ministered to back in the day and the, the people of that time. And so the way of the Messiah is not through political conquest but through suffering service. Remember what I said about the cost of discipleship and what it means to follow me. The way of the Messiah is the way of the cross. It is the way of suffering. It is the way of hardship. So Jesus corrects their understanding. This text is a powerful text. It it serves serves such a confirmatory role in establishing the identity of Jesus Christ and what He has come to do. Even as He shone in the radiance of of His beauty and the glory there. And then through that correcting the responses and the understanding of the disciples as they're wrestling and trying to understand what is the Messiah to do. As we stand here today, we do not have the, again, we don't have the privilege, we don't have the opportunity to see the glory of Christ in person, right? That's not something that the Lord gives to us at that time, but there will be a day when that will come, right? But we do get to see the testimony and read the testimony of individuals who did personally see that and have sought to write these things down to preserve that account and communicate it to us. And then we have the obligation to respond, to allow the the Word of God, to allow what, what Christ has communicated, to allow the glory of Christ as communicated through the pages of Scripture to correct our response, to correct our misunderstandings of things when those things arise as we submit to the Word of God, as we submit to the Messiah. We are corrected in our understanding, and it can, it can be challenged in how we think through several things about what must come. And then we are further confirmed in this understanding of the necessity of suffering, and that that is what Christ has come to do. And again, we have covered several times all those who leave a godly. Life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Lord, we thank you so much for this text. Thank you for this testimony, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the testimony that is preserved for us. When we do not as of yet get to behold your glory face to face, that day's coming. That 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 day will come when we will get to behold and and see and rejoice. We will we will rejoice to see that day. Lord, I pray that as we live out our days upon this earth, as we do live here, as we just consider the testimony of, of of this account before us. Lord, we rejoice in what the Messiah has come to do. We rejoice in the confidence that we can have in Jesus, the Messiah. The Lord, even as we consider that testimony in Peter's testimony in Second Peter chapter 1, how yet even now we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have the word of God fully confirmed, to which we would do well to pay attention as to a light shining in the darkness. testimony of the transfiguration is a powerful one. And Your Word of God, Lord, Your Word is sure. May we allow You and Your Spirit to correct us in our responses to You and Your Word, to challenge us in our understandings. And may we submit fully and wholly unto You, recognizing the way of the cross, the way of the suffering Messiah is what we must be willing to endure as your disciples. Thank you and I praise you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.